0: Before we start today's episode, I wanted to let you know that we'll be talking about mature themes and assault. Hello, my name is Ruby, and I am seven years old. Do you think girls should be in the Constitution? I think that girls should be in the Constitution. What is the Constitution, do you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, like a, it's like a document that, that tells all the laws of our country. Do you think it should protect girls and boys? Yes. <laughs> do you think boys and girls should be equal? Why do you think that? Because you got to be nice to each other.
1: You must remember that when the Constitution was written, that women were regarded as property.
2: The struggle for an equal rights amendment traces back to 1923 when feminist Alice Paul wrote the words that became ERA.
1: Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex.
3: So as we march today, remember, Forward together, backward never!
2: If you could change one thing about the Constitution, what would it be?
4: I would add an
2: Equal Rights Amendment
1: to the Constitution. Yesterday, all these years later, Virginia's legislature voted to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, making it the 38th state to do so. That means three-quarters of all states have ratified, as the Constitution requires.
0: Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, human rights attorney, feminist, and advocate for the Equal Rights Amendment. On ordinary equality, we've already established that the ladies were forgotten. We've gone back in history to suss out the origins of the ERA. But why does an idea some women had in the 1920s still matter today? It could have been a big deal back then, but do we still need it now? The answer is yes. And today we'll talk about why. As you know, I grew up Mormon. When I talk to Mormon women about inequality, many want to pretend it doesn't exist, and they say things like, but I feel equal. To them I say, equality is not a feeling. It doesn't matter if you feel valued and supported by your community or your workplace or your family. Equality can be measured, and women in the church and in the United States of America are not equal. The most clear indicator of this is our law. The late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia spoke with alarming candor about our lack of constitutional protection.
4: Certainly, the Constitution does not require sexual discrimination on the basis of sex. The only issue is whether it prohibits it. It it doesn't. Nobody ever thought that that's what it meant. Nobody ever voted for that.
0: Scalia is what they call an originalist someone who thinks the Constitution should only mean what the original dudes who wrote it wanted it to mean. But as we learned in episode two, those dudes did not care about women. We can't change the minds of originalists like Scalia, but we can change the document they are charged with interpreting. We can change the U.S. Constitution. It's a cumbersome process But the founders did put in a way for us to edit the document that they created. That's what an amendment is. So our Constitution doesn't currently prevent discrimination on the basis of sex. But why does that actually matter? Here's Representative Carolyn Maloney. She represents New York's 12th District in the U.S. House of Representatives. She's a longtime ERA advocate. I think it's the most important issue
5: for women in this country. And I truly believe when women succeed, our country succeeds. And we cannot afford to go forward in this global economy without developing the skills and the abilities of all of our residents to the best of their ability, both men and women. I get frustrated in Congress because the same issues come back over and over again of harassment, discrimination against women, Uh, particularly in the military and in other areas. And the reason that's happening is that they're not protected in the Constitution. We we still don't have equal pay for equal work. Uh, Constantly, they're trying to roll back our rights. Our rights should be rock hard in the Constitution and, and protecting women. They shouldn't be at the whim of who's the president or who's the majority leader in the House and the Senate, and who's on the courts, It it should be a protected right in our Constitution. And this is important. The Constitution already provides strict scrutiny or guidelines against discrimination based on race and national origin, but a lesser standard is applied to discrimination against women, So the strict scrutiny protection against discrimination based on race or national origin should also apply to discrimination based on sex. And only an ERA would provide for gender equity and offer an overriding guarantee of equal protection for women. And the ERA would provide constitutional force to existing prohibitions against sex discrimination in the workplace or schools. And it would stop the bias that we see so often in wages, fringe benefits, promotions, hiring practices, and other conditions of employment.
0: It's really important. Representative Maloney has been pushing the ERA since she got into office in 1993. As a congresswoman trying to pass laws to protect women, she realized that even our Constitution didn't protect us. And that limited what she as a legislator
5: could do. In fact, when I went to Congress, I made a list of 10 things that I wanted to accomplish. And I've accomplished hundreds of things. But one of the things on that original 10 was to ratify and pass the Equal Rights Amendment. And I have worked on it every single year that I've been in Congress and we have not achieved it yet, but we will achieve it and I will never give up, along with many other women, and I believe you and others, until we do ratify it and have it in the Constitution. My years in Congress have only shown me how absolutely critical it is uh, to pass and ratify this and give protections to women and enforcement of their rights and protections in the Constitution.
0: So let's get down to brass tacks. When someone asks you why we need the ERA, you just need to remember two words, litigation and legislation. Those are the two main ways the ERA will help impact women's legal status. Litigation helps us strike down bad laws from the books. Legislation helps us put good ones into law to protect us. As Representative Maloney mentioned, the ERA will help with litigation because it would increase the level of scrutiny used to assess sex discrimination cases. Scrutiny is just a fancy legal term for the way the justices review a case. The cases that get the highest level of scrutiny are those that address discrimination on the basis of race, religion, and national origin. Discrimination on the basis of sex gets a lower standard intermediate scrutiny, so it's easier to pass sexist laws and keep them on the books. The second L word, legislation, means that the ERA would enable Congress to enact and enforce more laws that protect women. It will give members of Congress a hook to pass more robust laws that prevent discrimination against us. The 14th Amendment was passed after the Civil War to eliminate discrimination on the basis of race. It has since been expanded to other categories like religion, national origin, and gender. Those are all called suspect classes. The court thinks that these groups all deserve different standards of review or tests. Basically, they think discrimination on the basis of some of those categories is worse than others or less justifiable. The levels of judicial scrutiny are strict scrutiny, intermediate or heightened scrutiny, and rational basis. The intermediate and strict scrutiny tests are more stringent than that of rational basis. The rational basis test is the lowest and only used when no fundamental rights or suspect classifications are at issue. Right now, women get intermediate scrutiny, which is kind of that murky in-between. To help explain more about why we need the ERA for litigation, I spoke with my former constitutional law professor, Jamie Raskin. He's now a colleague of Representative Maloney in the U.S. House of Representatives, hailing from Maryland's 8th District.
2: We basically say we have three different categories. We have strict scrutiny, and that applies to race and ethnicity. The next level down, we'd say we've got heightened scrutiny, and gender is the primary way of doing that. And that leans towards strict scrutiny more than to rational basis scrutiny where almost anything goes unless it's completely irrational. But if we had an Equal Rights Amendment, uh, gender would clearly trigger strict scrutiny um, and not just heightened scrutiny.
0: Scrutiny refers to how judges and justices look at violations of the law.
2: All law is about drawing lines. So you've gotta be 16 in order to go get your driver's permit, right? If there's a 14-year-old in your family who thinks they could be a great driver, like say they've driven a golf cart or something, and they think, I think I could be a great driver, I'm gonna challenge the state law, which says you've gotta be 16 to get your driver's license. That's not gonna work, at least under the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, because the classification there is age. And under our Constitution, age is not a suspect classification. That is, it's not suspicious. We don't um, intrinsically regard age-based classifications as ones that discriminate because people age out of an age classification. It would trigger only what we call rational basis review. That is, is there a reasonable basis for drawing the line where it's drawn? Does the existence of the classification where it is enhance the underlying purpose of it? For the driver's license, we would say, well, we obviously don't want kids who don't have sufficient maturity or coordination or height or so on to drive. And so 16 seems like it's a reasonable place to draw the line. That is, there are reasonable purposes there, the protection of the kid, the protection of other people on the road, those are reasonable purposes. And drawing the line at 16 does generally advance that goal. So that's going to pass rational basis scrutiny. Now, all the way down on the other side of the spectrum are race-based classifications. And these are the ones that are within the hardcore of suspect classifications. They trigger the most suspicion, the most scrutiny under the 14th Amendment, because the whole purpose of the 14th Amendment adopted uh, in the wake of the Civil War was to protect African-Americans against race discrimination. So that we would say is the paradigm case for a suspect classification. So if someone said, as they used to say, well, in order to vote, uh, you've got to be white. In order to go to school here, you've got to be white. In order to be in the front of the bus, you've got to be white. That triggers strict scrutiny. uh, And we would say, well, what's the purpose of saying whites ride in one part of the bus and blacks ride in the other. Well, they might say, well, for public order. Hmm, that sounds pretty abstract. Public order. Well, public health, they might say. Public manners, whatever. Well, we're not really getting a very strong sense of what this compelling interest is. You need to show us a compelling interest under strict scrutiny. And how does this race classification advance your compelling interest? If your ends are public order, how do the means work if the means are separating people by race? And the courts, of course, have come to the conclusion that all of that is phony. These are invidious discriminations. They're pretextual discriminations. They're just an attempt to mask racism and racial oppression.
0: Still confused? Don't worry. I took an entire class in law school from Professor Raskin. And the levels of scrutiny are still confusing to me and to many lawyers. This entire system set up by the Supreme Court is intentionally opaque. They want to be able to strike down some laws and keep others. And they aren't always clear about which ones will stand. It's not cut and dry or straightforward. But what's important to know is that gender has a lower status than the other categories. That's it. When a woman takes a case to court to prove she was discriminated against, we want the highest level of judicial review, scrutiny, to apply. We'll be right back after this message. I'm a lawyer, I'm also a podcaster, and I have lots of side hustles. Juggling all this can get confusing. I need a tool where everything is in one place so I can stay organized and always look professional. HoneyBook is an online business management tool that organizes your client communications, bookings, contracts, invoices, all that stuff in one place. It's perfect for freelancers, entrepreneurs, small business owners, and anyone who wants to consolidate services that they already use. Right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off when you visit tryhoneybook.com equality. Payment is flexible, and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. So go to tryhoneybook.com slash equality for 50% off your first year. That's right, tryhoneybook.com slash equality. Special thanks to HoneyBook for their support of this episode of Ordinary Equality. Now on to the other L word, legislation. The other huge problem we face without the ERA is that Congress only has limited power to pass legislation. The legislative branch of the federal government can only enact laws with the powers that are expressly granted to it in the Constitution. The rest is left to the states. When it comes to protecting women, there's nothing in there. Historically, some protections have been pushed through under the guise of regulating interstate commerce. That strategy doesn't always work. Here's Julie Sook, Dean and Professor at the City University of New York.
3: One example is the Violence Against Women Act. This was a statute in the 90s that Congress passed that would have given a civil rights remedy to victims of gender-motivated violence. And the Supreme Court struck that down in 2000, claiming that it was not a valid exercise of Congress's power to enforce the Equal Protection laws, nor was it a valid exercise of Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. And it seems that if Congress wanted to address in a more robust fashion the problem of unequal pay and the complex practices that produce unequal pay, it would seem that the ERA would provide a clearer and more direct authorization for Congress to act in these areas. And I think that is important because you can imagine, so we have a lot of conflicts of rights in the United States. So you can imagine a law that's intended to promote women and to address women's disadvantage as being challenged either under the Equal Protection Clause. Sometimes laws that promote women might even be challenged under the First Amendment, the religion clauses of the First Amendment. So there are many situations in which you can see, you know, were very litigious. Uh, And you could see many situations in which a legislature tries to promote actual equality for men and women. And uh, in such situations, if someone were to challenge that statute, Section 2 of the ERA would make it possible for a judge to sustain that law.
0: This stuff can all feel very legalistic and wonky sometimes. But without the Equal Rights Amendment, the judicial and legislative branches of our government have been thwarted time and time again in attempts to protect women. To talk about the consequences of that lack of protection,
4: I spoke with Miriam Safi. My name is Mariam Safi, and I'm a survivor of female genital mutilation, and I'm also an activist on the issue in my personal capacity. And anything I say during this podcast is not necessarily reflective of any of the institutions I'm affiliated with.
0: Female genital mutilation is the partial or total removal of the female genitalia. Mariam and others call it FGM for short. According to the World Health Organization, FGM serves no medical purpose and only has the capacity to do harm. It's a misogynistic practice that dates
4: back thousands of years. It's a form of child sexual assault. I would even say child sexual assault with the sharp objects. And so it's it's a very sort of brutal form of violence. And it, it happens typically when girls are young. The age range can vary. In my community, it's typically around age seven when girls are cut. People
0: in the U.S. often think that FGM is a distinctly foreign problem, but that's not the case. Not only does it happen in the U.S., only 35 U.S. states have made specific laws that prohibit FGM.
4: I was born in Fort Worth, uh, which is in the northern part of Texas. And my parents are originally from India. So I always, you know, I was a product of immigrants. And so I was always curious about South Asia and India and, and, you know, my roots, where I came from. So every summer, my parents, you know, they were working immigrant parents. My mom was a physician, dad's an engineer. But um, when I was growing up, we would be sent off every summer to stay with relatives, largely because they were working. And then one summer, we were in India. My brother and I would often travel by ourselves to to these places and so um, my aunt that summer quite religious very much in part of this insular community the the Dawadi Bora community which is a subsect of Shia Islam largely concentrated sort of on the western coast of India and parts of Pakistan but there's a diaspora all over um, including here in the United States so my aunt actually when I was seven years old, around the age when most girls are are being cut she, um, lured me into her basement clinic. She was a physician and, you know, with a bribe of a Toblerone and a Cadbury, like the jumbo size chocolates that you get at duty free at the airport. She, you know, seven years old. She said, oh, you know, if you're good, you can have this. And then, you know, I kind of knew something was a bit off, but again, was too young to really know what was going on. And so she laid me on her operating table. As is
0: typical with survivors of trauma, what happened was so disturbing. Miriam blocked out the
4: memory entirely. It wasn't until 10 years later that she remembered. I was sitting in this class and, you know, a fellow undergrad student, I was 17 years old, was mentioning her research topic is on female genital mutilation. Didn't ring a bell, didn't know what that meant. And then she said it typically happens at age seven, usually by a female relative. And then it's almost never discussed after it happens. And so then it sort of triggered something and the memories that flooded back were very graphic and visual. So I remembered the color of the carpet. I remembered, you know, the level of detail, the granular detail you wouldn't normally remember, you know, from from that age.
0: At first, Miriam didn't want to speak up about her experience because she didn't want to attract or fuel anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant sentiment. She also didn't know it was as common as it is because it was a subject no one spoke about. With the encouragement of her parents, she eventually decided to speak out. Miriam is by no means alone. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimate that there are nearly half a million American girls who have survived FGM or are at risk of being cut. A federal FGM law does exist, but there has only been one trial under this law.
4: Dr. Jumana Nagarwala is locked up accused of performing FGM or female genital mutilation on young girls. In 2017, there was a physician and a group of accomplices who were charged under the federal statute, which banned female genital mutilation. And I think it's from the mid-90s. This was the first federal case in U.S. history where this federal law had been tested. And so the physician, Dr. Jumana Nagarwala, who's, you know, has a very impressive pedigree, was charged with cutting nine girls, some of whom were actually transported across state lines from Minnesota and Illinois to Michigan. And there were two that were from Michigan. And so it was done after hours in a clinic. And the case was important because it was the first time there was any sort of awareness on the issue of female genital mutilation or FGM here in the United States. You know, we have these laws they're important this is why they're important in 2018 the federal district judge in this case dismissed the charges stating kind of on a technicality so in his in his opinion he wrote how terrible FGM is and it's wrong and that he doesn't agree with the practice at all but according to the commerce clause in in the constitution that that he believes and his ruling that congress never had the authority to pass the legislation in the first place because based on the commerce clause you would have to prove that there was an economic transaction occurring across state lines. This goes back to the interstate commerce strategy I spoke about earlier.
0: The federal judge ruled that Congress doesn't have the right to ban FGM. It's a state's rights issue. Though it has been banned in other countries around the world, this judge said there is no place in the U.S. Constitution to protect women and girls from female genital mutilation. Here's Representative Maloney again.
5: That, I think, is a national scandal. That law I worked on with uh, Patricia Schroeder, and it banned FGM in our country. And yet that was struck down by a court in America, which is startling, saying that you can't ban FGM, the mutilation of women. I find that outlandish, and that's another reason why we need the Equal Rights Amendment. I, I tell you, it's really, really necessary.
4: And here's Miriam. I mean, it was devastating. It was devastating. And I know not only was it devastating for me and many other survivors who were really hoping for accountability. You know, we have these laws for the United States. This is a human rights violation. This is a form of child abuse. In all of the interagency language in the U.S. government, it states this is a form of gender-based violence. This is a form of child abuse. And it's a child protection issue, et cetera. So for me, it was it was very disheartening because alongside my disappointment my community, those that practice FGM were overjoyed. And so they said, wow, this is to them, you know, regardless of the intricacies of the case and whether the Commerce Clause or whatnot, to them, all they heard was, this is a constitutional green light for us. This is a victory for us. And we can keep practicing. Not everyone in the community is pro-FGM, but those that were pro-FGM they were celebrating and in uh, other communities too, outside my community. So for example, this imam in Virginia, who the hypersexuality imam, like he uh, I'm sure is also sort of saying, great, I feel vindicated, you know, now that there's no accountability, I can feel even more empowered to continue preaching um, some of this uh, misogynistic and patriarchal kind of dogma that really is not part of the religion, but is being peddled in that way. Mm-hmm.
0: Women of many different backgrounds suffer abuse and discrimination in our country. The ERA isn't going to be a magical solution. It's not going to solve all of our problems immediately. Our government may still fail to protect people. But adding the ERA to the Constitution will open the gates for a whole new world of legislation and protections. It can change the tide we wouldn't have to rely on the Interstate Commerce Clause to get and keep laws like the
1: FGM ban, which really should be a no-brainer. Any real conception of equality would face, and has to face, and actually will face, as it has in some other countries, that if equality is to be made real in any sense, that, Some groups are not inferior to other groups, and that it's the assumption that they are that is built into this sameness and difference calculation. That's Katherine McKinnon, professor of law at the University of Michigan and Harvard. Women are not inferior to men. People of color are not inferior to white people. The real systems that we're facing of inequality are white supremacy, and male supremacy, uh, actually white male supremacy in its intersectional form. And there really is no empirical disagreement over that. The question is uh, when the law will face it and what tools will be needed in order to ensure that, that that is faced. The passage of an Equal Rights Amendment offers an opportunity for an understanding of that real problem to be faced by a new constitutional amendment in a way that is always been possible, but is much more, and people have tried. uh, And sometimes it's happened a little bit, but a new constitutional amendment offers an opening for that possibility.
0: When the ERA does get ratified and put into the Constitution, That will be the beginning of a whole lot more work. But it will be a crucial start. It will lay the groundwork for the two L words. With a new standard for litigation, women will be able to win more cases in court. And we will be able to get new legislation protecting women from unequal pay for equal work, domestic violence, pregnancy discrimination, discriminatory laws, and sexual orientation discrimination all of these new female legislators who are part of the women's wave will have an additional tool in their arsenal to come up with great laws. We're gonna get more into that in a future episode, because all of that relies on actually ratifying this thing and getting it into the constitution. The ERA is the foundation for building a more equitable future. Here's my former professor, Representative Raskin again.
2: Put it this way, It may not be sufficient to get you everything you want, but the language is necessary to get you what you want. And so the Equal Rights Amendment should be seen as something that's necessary to get real equality for women. It also should be seen as like a flag in the sand, a rallying point to transform other misogynistic and patriarchal practices that need to be dismantled. And constitutional amendments have always worked that way. They've always worked as a signpost for where society needs to go.
0: The ERA matters to real people, people like Miriam Saifi, and the girls in her community who are at risk of violence because women and girls aren't in the Constitution yet.
4: You create the ecosystem around that belief, and in the case of the ERA around gender equality, how it will actually manifest will, will be, those details will be worked out, but it's a matter of setting that baseline.
0: Like Miriam said, we need to set a baseline, and equality between all genders should be the baseline set in the Constitution. At the very top of the show, we heard from my niece Ruby. She's seven, just like Miriam was when she was cut. Given that this is all so important, why didn't people just pass the ERA before 2020? Well, they sort of did, at least Congress did. Next time on Ordinary Equality, we're heading back to 1972 to talk about just that. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production, edited and produced by Liz Smith, executive produced by Jenny Kaplan, with support from Edie Allard. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Wardell. Special thanks to my employer, Equality Now, an international human rights organization that works to protect and promote the rights of women and girls all around the world, including ending FGM in all countries. To learn more about what you can do to support the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, check out equalitynow.org backslash E-R-A. To follow along with our journey, find us on Twitter at OrdEquality, O-R-D Equality. If you like our show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Wonder Media Network is a women-led podcasting company dedicated to lifting up underrepresented voices based in New York City. There's no doubt that early voting states play an outsized role in selecting the Democratic nominee. But what goes on behind the scenes? How does the Iowa caucus even work? And what do voters in New Hampshire really care about? Your primary playlist is unpacking all of this in a new mini season dedicated to understanding what goes on in the early battleground states. Host Emily Tisch Sussman speaks with women who are elected officials and political experts to understand how specific issues are playing out in the states that will choose the Democratic frontrunner. Listen to your primary playlist to see how Iowa, Nevada, South Carolina, and New Hampshire will help select the Democratic nominee this presidential election. Subscribe to your primary playlist wherever you get your podcasts.